Hey, welcome to the One Foot Down Podcast, episode 20. This is our pre-bowl game episode. Uh, we might be able to sneak another podcast in there before the Irish head to New York City and face Rutgers. Um, today with me, I have Paul Rigney back on the podcast. Paul, how you doing? Good. Glad to be part of this again. All right, so we got a handful of topics to go over today. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about is the coaching, uh, the impact of some of the coaches who have left Notre Dame in the recent week or so. Um, Martin, the offensive coordinator, taking the job at Miami of Ohio uh, about a week ago. And yesterday it was announced that defensive coordinator Bob Diaco is now the head coach at the University of Connecticut. Um, first of all, did you watch Bob Diaco's press conference today at UConn? I did. And if uh, anyone who's listening to this hasn't watched it, I recommend you go to, I sort of can't believe I'm recommending another website for another college football team, but go to UConn's website or go to uh, our SBN partner, uh, the UConn blog, and go over there. And if they've got a link to it, click it and watch it because it will sort of remind a lot of Irish fans who were sort of a little maybe hypercritical or a little bit over uh, uh, over critiquing of Diaco's style. And it's a good reminder of the guy that we're really going to miss because it was one heck of a press conference. He whipped out quotes from uh, he was very anim- uh, he was very passionate. Uh, sang the praises uh, of Brian Kelly, spoke very high of Notre Dame, uh, mentioned that it had a special place in his heart, and as a sort of a country music fan, I got a kick out of the fact that he quoted a Garth Brooks song, so it's definitely a must-listen. Highly recommend listening to it. Yeah, it was very interesting watching it and feeling the urge to want to cover that press conference and then come to the realization that he's not our coach anymore. Um, it almost feels like we should cover it anyway and just throw it up on our site and see how Evan reacts to it. But I would echo what you said. It's almost like uh, some of those glimpses we got of Diaco over the past four years were so fun and entertaining. And then to see this almost, oh, I think he probably spoke for over 30 minutes or so, of just unfiltered Diaco, it was just great to, uh, to watch something like that. Um, and it does remind you of how not just a great of a coach he is, because that doesn't really show, you know, his coaching abilities, but um, just his personality, um, just the whole. I think he has a, almost the whole package when you're turn when you're looking at um, young, hot, up, 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 up and coming coaches and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I, I hope like heck that he is successful at UConn because uh, he's someone who I think Notre Dame could look at coming back as a head coach. Um, and maybe we'll talk about this in the podcast here in a few minutes um, in comparison to Chuck Martin. But uh, I think when you're looking at you know, building a, a coach from scratch, Diaco seems to have it all. So uh, let's get into this first question here. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about who you thought was the bigger, bigger loss for the program, Chuck Martin, the offensive coordinator, Bob Diaco. Um, give me your take on uh, losing these both, both of these guys. Well, I think it, when when you sort of when it boils down to it, I think Diaco really is the bigger loss. I think that there's whether rightly or wrongly, the mindset and belief is out there amongst a lot of Irish fans, a lot of even Irish non-fans that Ben Kelly has a lot of control over the offense. I don't know 
how necessarily true that was when it came with with regards to play calling, personnel, formations. I'm not entirely sure the autonomy that he had uh, or that he granted to his assistant coaches like Chuck Martin, but it was pretty clear that Bob Diaco was in charge of the defense. Uh, I know he shared the co-D coordinator title with Kerry Cooks, and I'm sure we'll bring up Cooks in, in a little bit later in the podcast, but Diaco was a standout recruiter like Martin, but he recruited at positions where when Kelly came into the fold at Notre Dame that the cupboard was absolutely dry. Whereas with the offense, when we had Charlie Molnar at offensive coordinator, there the cupboard was a little bit more full. We had players like uh, Floyd. We had uh, at least moderately decent running backs available. Uh, we were a little bit thin at quarterback. We were a little bit too young at quarterback when Kelly came in. But we did have Dane Christ, uh, who started the season in 2010, pretty solid and then sort of regressed as his Irish career went on and was sort of beset by injuries but you had depth there on the offense that you didn't have on the defense the defense was very dry and I think if a lot of Irish fans remember sort of the final years of Charlie Weiss with the drama with Corin Brown and the drama with John Tenuden who was in charge of what and you know the the just the dark recesses of the memory of the Stanford game where we had to let Stanford score because we knew we couldn't stop them when we had to get our, our offense back on the field. It just goes to show how much trouble that side of the football uh, we were in. And Diaco came in and turned them around in about two and a half years into the number one defense in the country. And this isn't like a, a, a Pat Narduzzi type situation at Michigan State where they're pretty solid year in and year out. This team was in the 100s when it comes to defensive rankings and went to number one. So you have to give a lot of credit to Bob Diaco. You have to give a lot of credit to his recruiting ability. Uh, I think a lot of people, if if you don't know the story of how he got players like Eshock Williams, I recommend reading up on it because it's absolutely fascinating about how he was at, completely relentless with identifying players that would be good for the program, identifying players that he wanted on the field, and and, and sort of pulling all stops to to get them. So I, in sort of the full circle. Diaco to me really is the bigger loss simply because of the control he had, uh, the passion that he brought to the side of the football, and, and just the quick turnaround. I mean, we did have problems defensively this year, but that is is sort of a, a, a blemish on sort of the grand picture that Bob Diaco painted of this Irish defense, at least during his tenure here. So to me, Diaco definitely is the bigger loss. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I thought three different reasons why I thought Diaco was a bigger loss. I mean, you kind of touched on the first one. It's just mostly production, really. Kind of put Diaco's resume against Chuck Martin's, and um, you know, Diaco had more responsibility for most of his tenure here at Notre Dame, so it's kind of not a fair a fair comparison, but uh, you know, Diaco did some really great things with this defense, like you said. Uh, the second thing I thought was, I thought Diaco leaving was a little bit more of a surprise, so I think in that sense, you know, it's a bigger loss because we're filling a hole that we probably didn't think we were going to fill this year, even though Jocko was, you know, a hot name last year and we're pretty worried about him leaving. It didn't really feel like he was going to leave this year. I think I even mentioned that in my, the latest cutting through the coach speak. I didn't think that Brian Kelly sensed that 
Diaka was leaving. Um, it did come also, on really fast. It, yeah, it was, and I, I mean, Martin, we kind of had an idea. There were a lot of rumors out there that we knew he was in came out of the blue in 24 hours. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to say that, you know, it's not a huge surprise with Doc Hill leaving, but I think he could have been the type of coach, and I'll go back to him having a bit of a higher ceiling, I think, than, than Chuck Martin. I, I think Diaco could have been the type of coach who, maybe like Pat Narduzzi, stayed with Kelly here for five or six more years as at D.C. and then became the head coach um, here at Notre Dame. But, uh, you know, obviously that's not going to happen right now. Now, the third thing I think is, I think it's just more difficult overall to replace a defensive coordinator um, I think, you know, defensive in-game coaching, uh, adjusting schemes within games, um, game planning, and basic just basic teaching and practice, I think that's all a little bit more difficult um, from a defensive coordinating spot. So I think in that sense, Notre Dame's going to be missing that. And, you know, I think that's going to be a huge question mark. Moving forward, who's going to fill that spot? So uh, do you have anything else to add to uh, to the bigger loss there? No, I pretty much agree with what you said. When you're talking about the defense, uh, at least scheme-wise, there's a lot more that goes into uh, it, a lot more into it because it's really a reactive type of uh, coaching that you've not only got to control your players being active with blitzes and assignments and gaps, but you're also reacting to what the offense is showing you. So there's a lot more in there that I think we're really going to miss with Diaco. Yeah, and he wasn't a perfect coach in that respect at, at all, but um, you know, he did a lot of good things. I think fundamentally uh, he turned the program around really well. Um, I know the tackling this year wasn't uh, that great, but uh, I still think it's still miles ahead of where it was before he arrived. Um, and, you know, I think like I said, defensive in general it, it's, it's a lot harder to coach up at that side of the ball. I think on offense, it's such a QB-centric uh, position. Your quarterback can do so many things on his own. Um, you know, On offense, it's it can be sometimes a matter of a running back making a guy miss or making another guy miss and just running really fast and making big plays. And, and defense, you know, it's more coaching up guys and scheme, even though I think a lot of fans tend to focus on play calling on offense. I think defense is probably more important when it comes to uh, stuff inside inside each game and within each series and in with each quarter and half and stuff like that. So um, I think Tiago's definitely going to be a big loss for Notre Dame. So our second topic here is um, if Kelly goes outside of Notre Dame for one of the coordinator hires, and let's just pretend that he will only choose one side of the ball to go outside of uh, the coaching staff for a hire, uh, which side of the ball would you choose right now? Right now, I choose defense. Um, there's, at least it's basically out there in the news now that uh, Bob Elliott, in a visit with a recruit, told him that Kelly was going to promote from within. I think it's pretty obvious from from our vantage point that Kerry Cooks is set to become uh, the defensive coordinator. He's going to be defensive coordinator for the bowl game. Yep. I wouldn't. I would not be surprised if they sort of stripped the co-defensive coordinator title from him uh, after the season and and gave him the D coordinator title and put him in charge there. But then you're leaving a gap where you need a linebackers coach. 
you may potentially need somebody to handle Cooks' responsibility with the cornerbacks. When it comes to that, I would stick with the defensive side uh, of, of the football when you're looking at coaches. I think Brian Kelly, again, as I sort of iterated before, that he has a lot of control over the offense. I think he, he has a lot of say in the play calling. Uh, he has a lot of say in the personnel. Uh, he has a lot of say in the formations and the plays that are run. And when it comes down to it, I'm more inclined to trust his ability on the offensive side and seek uh, f greater help on the defensive side of the football. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm with you on that too. Um, it's kind of funny because earlier in the week with Chuck Barton leaving, I was kind of hoping that we would see an offensive coordinator come from outside of the the coaching staff on Notre Dame right now. But um, I'm with you on that. I think you know the defensive side of the ball would probably be more important right now for all the reasons we just stated in the first uh, topic here. Um, the only thing I, I'm kind of cautioned with is I don't think there's really that great of a pool of candidates from uh, across the country that could come in and be a defensive coordinator. Um, I know we've talked behind the scenes a little bit, especially today among our staff, you know, saying it's pretty difficult to hire a star defense coordinator away from another top school. Um, you know, you don't see that a whole lot. But is there a guy out there who is a rising D.C. who would come and coach Notre Dame? And I don't know. I think it's, you know, it's a pretty difficult topic to research. Um, we may get into that at some point here over the next few days. Um, I just quickly scanned the coaching ranks, and two guys that stuck out to me were Phil Bennett at Baylor and Dick Bumpus at TCU. I think both of those guys are 4-3 guys, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I think Bumpus has been with Gary Patterson his whole career, so I don't think they would part ways. But you know, just looking at the list, I don't really think there are a lot of great candidates out there. And then I think on the offensive side of the ball, you know, there's a couple names being thrown around. I know Iris Illustrated in the recent podcast mentioned Bill Cubitt at Illinois, um, formerly the head coach at Western Michigan for eight years. And Rick Neuheisel has also been thrown out there as well, um, former coach at UCLA, Washington, Colorado, and he was with the Ravens for mm -hmm. three years. Um, that guy has a lot of coaching experience already. He's only 52. He's been all over the place. Um, so I think, you know, we're probably going to see Cooks, like you said, get this mm -hmm. defensive coordinator spot. Um, we'll see what happens on the offense, but like you said, I think that's more of Kelly ba Kelly's baby. So, um, go ahead. To throw a couple other names out there, um, just in the interest of of agreeing with you and sort of pursuing it a little bit further, I, I do think that if we if he does bring in somebody like News New or if he does bring in somebody like Cubit. Uh, I think those would be good additions to the staff. Uh, Irish fans may remember we actually did play a Bill Cubitt head coach team already. Uh, that sort of infamous Western Michigan game at home uh, a few years back yeah, when everyone kind of hemmed and hawed about the fact that we were playing a Mac school for finally for the first time. But that was a Bill Cubitt was the head coach of that team, so it. it wouldn't necessarily be that far off. He is Midwest-based. Uh, he is on a team that uh, may be going through some, maybe going through some coaching changes. Uh, may not be. 
Uh, it's tough to say, but in the long run, you also want to look at teams that have sort of, like you said, been up and coming and teams that sort of came out of nowhere. I think if you go out west, uh, you look at teams like Fresno State and San Jose State, teams that you really didn't see that have, at least with Fresno State, was sort of skimming the edge of getting into the BCS picture. Uh, until they were actually upset by Fresno State. So maybe you look at somebody like Dave Schramm, who's the OC at Fresno, or maybe you look at somebody like Ron Antoine, who's the, the wide receivers coach, maybe somebody like Greg Lewis at San Jose State, a former NFL football player, young, fresh, maybe looking for a, for a leg up, also played for the Philadelphia Eagles. Defensively, uh, the coach that I would love to have on my football team uh, if if I'm Brian Kelly, you're going to promote Derek Harry Do you need a linebackers coach? The, where I'm looking is I'm actually going to the pro ranks, and I think that it also adds to the difficulty, like you were saying, in identifying up and coming coaches because you're not only going to look for at coordinator positions for head coaches. It's very easy because you can look at oh this coordinator or this coordinator or the head coach at this smaller conference school or this coordinator on a pro level. When you're looking at assistant coaches, you've got this wide swath that you can look at. The, the coach that I've identified that I would love to have is Bill McGovern. Bill McGovern is uh, a Philadelphia Eagles fan. You'll know him because he's your outside linebackers coach. Before that, he was Boston College's defensive coordinator. He's from New Jersey. Went to a Catholic school in Holy Cross in Massachusetts, played football there. But the sort of the big thing for me is he was Luke Keckley's coach. And Luke Keckley has sort of come on for the Carolina Panthers this year and was also Mark Herzlich's coach. He's, he's got sort of the pedigree that I would like to have in a linebacker's coach. But again, it's sort of a lateral move if you're coming from the pro level to Notre Dame coaching linebackers. He's going to probably want some other responsibility there. So it's very, very hard, like you said, to identify coaches. And Kelly, more often than not, tends to bring in staff members that we really never saw. Uh, Bob Elliott, for one, I, I don't think anyone sort of envisioned him coming in, and he's been great. So it's I'm very excited to see uh, the, t the types of coaches that Kelly's going to bring in. And just to... Uh, State it blunt as facts for for any Irish fan. This is a good thing. The fact that we don't have to fire coaches, the fact that other teams, other schools want our coaches to lead them, is a good thing for the program. It really is because it means that we're obviously doing something right, not just on the team, not just on the field, but doing stuff well. So this is the fifth uh, assistant coach under Brian Kelly who has a. A major coaching job now, is that right? I think Martin, Diaco, Jones Fish, of Tennessee. Jones, uh, the UB coach who I should know because I'm from Buffalo and I can't remember his name. Jacqueline. There you go. And uh, Charlie Molnar, so that's five. So he's doing a pretty good job spreading his uh, coaching tree around. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to add to that. Uh, the only thing I, I would conclude with is uh, I also give a lot of credit to Kelly and uh, Swarbrick for their comments regarding the hire of 
Diaco at Connecticut, it's sort of yeah. along the same lines as what they said with Chuck Martin going to Miami, Ohio. It was very positive, very gushing. Uh, congrats to UConn for hiring a, a great coach to lead them into the future, that type of thing. So I, I do give uh, a lot of uh, uh, praise to not just Kelly, but the administration were not only promote these guys, but singing praises after the fact. So we probably think the most likely outcome is going to be Kerry Cooks, the defensive coordinator, Bob Elliott, who now coaches just the safeties. Um, we think maybe he'll become the entire secondary coach, um, and that wouldn't mean we need to hire a new linebacker coach. Like you said, that was Diaco's positional group. How big of a loss do you think it would be if Elston, the defensive line coach, left and joined Diaco, which has been kind of floating around on Twitter a lot today? That would hurt. Uh, it's sort of along the same uh, uh, lines that we're going with with regards to Diaco's ability to recruit, same way with Elston. Elston was a dynamite recruiter. Uh, it was He's a position coach on the D-line that is one of the strongest units maybe in college football. Uh, it, it, our, our defensive woes this year were, were far from pinpointing the, the D-line and the, sort of the, the work and, and the, the stats that he was able to get out of third string, second string up players because of our injury problems is admirable. And I do think that maybe Kelly has to look at upping the raises, giving Elston, strapping the assistant head coach title on him. He did that to him uh, when he was at Cincinnati. He was an assistant head coach, so maybe you sort of from within, maybe you give him a little bit more responsibility. Maybe you give Elston the linebacker's position in addition to D-line. I don't know. But he is a guy that I would really target at trying to keep. There are in any coaching staff, there are staff members that I don't want to use the word expendable, but there are guys that if they were to leave, you may not necessarily uh, miss them or you could replace them with strong candidates. But this late in the game when you're trying to shore up a, a pretty strong recruiting class and Elston being one of the, the big players behind that, you really want to try and keep him if at all possible, at least through signing day, just to make sure that uh, we get the players that we need, that we're able to improve uh, above uh, everything else, that we're able to sort of move forward with improving the program day in and day out. Because right now, there really isn't, at least on the, the co current coaching staff, uh, an assistant or a graduate assistant that could really be So it looks like Notre Dame's going to have to hire at least two coaches or possibly move um, some coaches up within the coaching staff. Um, you know what we're going to talk about right now? Pinstripe Bowl. That's right. The Irish are going to be playing Rutgers oh, yeah. uh, in about, what is it, two weeks or so? Two weeks plus a right day. After, yeah, right after Christmas. Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, what's your uh, 
10 being you just can't wait for this game, how how much are you looking forward to this game? Four. Um, I I like bowl games. I, I sort of got chewed apart for it the last podcast and so, but I really enjoy the bowl games. I'm not entirely sold on our own. I I'm sort of feeling what T.J. Jones had said after the Stanford game. I would have preferred them to go to another bowl game somewhere warm, uh, Poinsettia Bowl, maybe the Hawaii Bowl, some where we would have been in a different location. We were just at Yankee Stadium a few years ago. And then on top of that, uh, not to sell our, our opponent short in Rutgers, but they are a team that basically backed into bowl eligibility because they were able to finish uh, the season playing South Florida, a, a team that had pretty much fallen apart all year. They got pretty much blown out three of their last four games. Uh, they had, or have already fired some assistants. Uh, they are kind of going through a little bit of turmoil, and I'm a little concerned about not being able to gauge how well our team is going to perform because I don't know if with the loss of Martin, with the loss of Diaco, how the team may specifically look. Uh, I think if you are going to lose both of your coordinators, that Rutgers is probably the first team that you want to play, a team that's sort of 6-6 six and six middling has something to prove, so they're going to be a little bit feisty out of the gate. However, eh, I, the, the only thing I can say about it is playing playing a New Jersey team in the pinstripe bowl, sort of, and we've got... Of extremely large fan base in the New York area. It sort of fits the bill for everything that the ESPN wants, everything that sort of the Pinstripe Bowl Committee wants, that they've got sort of the best of both worlds here. But just in the matchup, I'm, I'm a little eh on the matchup. I would have liked to see us play somebody like Houston or Cincinnati. And then in terms of playing in a different bowl game. But however, it... it that doesn't mean I won't watch. That doesn't mean I'm not necessarily excited for it. I would have preferred us to go somewhere else, but we'll wait and see what happens. How about you? Jeez, I would say probably a two. Um, I I thought Houston should have been the opponent in this game. Um, I don't even know how many Rutgers fans are going to show up to this game. Uh, all the stuff that I've seen from their fan base and a lot of their writers is, you know, they want this season to be over as much as we do. As much bad luck and crap has happened to Notre Dame this season, I, I guess this bowl game is probably kind of fitting for uh, the 2013 calendar year for Notre Dame. But uh, you know, I, I thought Houston was a lot better matchup. Um, a little bit I don't more know fun how of that, a matchup. Yeah, I, I don't know how that worked out, but Houston ended up to me getting a better bowl game draw. Sure, they're playing in Birmingham. Yeah, it's the BBVA Compass Bowl, and you can sort of giggle and chuckle about Pittsburgh playing there three years, but they get to play Vanderbilt. So they're playing against an SEC opponent. They're playing in the South. They're playing after New Year's Day. So yeah. I think, yeah, I don't know how they pulled, pulled it. I don't know how they swung it, but ended up getting a better bowl game draw uh, just sort of by default because the pinstripe ball, I guess, passed on them. And, you know, I, I want to see the seniors one last time. Um, you know, Zach Martin, TJ Jones, I think... There's always a aspect of sentimentality towards a watch watching the players play one more time. 
I think there's some intrigue around Tommy Reese's last game and stuff like that, but uh, I have a feeling this is going to be a game where we're going to run the ball 65 times. And uh, it's going to lead to a lot of arguing in the offseason about how we ran the ball X percentage of the time, but hey, no, we ran it 65 times in the bowl game. That doesn't count. So, But it wouldn't surprise me if that happens and there's bad weather. And, uh, it's a lot closer than they think. Now, the spread has come down. I think it started at like 18. It's down to 15.5 now. Do you think... Notre Dame will cover that spread. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. Again, it, when when you're looking at at a team like Rutgers, you're looking at a team that's again gone through a lot. They they're basically playing with a, their defensive coordinator didn't get hired by another school. Their defensive coordinator got fired. So there's a reason, and and the reason sort of lies in their overall performance and when you're sort of been gashed the way they've been gashed and you're looking at the fact that they've really not done a lot that they've had some really bad losses sort of the the recipe has been set for Notre Dame I, I, it sort of equated really to the Sun Bowl uh, in Kelly's first year because you've got a a team that uh, in in Rutgers, whereas when we were playing Miami, the matchup looked great. Like, oh, the Notre Dame, Miami, Notre Dame, Miami. But Miami was going through a lot of turmoil. They had fired their coach. They had an assistant coach coaching them, and they looked the part. So I'm not entirely sold on the fact that we are going to uh, really gauge much out of this game. But yeah, that's that spread would fit for me. I do think we're going to cover. I, I just, I don't think that this this game has the potential to be close. Uh, and I'm one, not one to be a little bit uh, confident when it comes to games. I, I picked us to lose to Michigan. I picked us to lose to Stanford. Uh, I had to sit through in person and watch the pit game. It, it, the, the, the pessimism has been there for me, but I just don't, I don't envision a scenario maybe outside of Tommy Reese throwing four interceptions on his first four passes of the game, all returned for touchdowns, where we're going to lose. It, that could it's, happen. It, uh, this is true. He has done it. So, it, you uh, know, it, 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 is, it is what it is. You know what my record is uh, picking against the spread this year in Notre Dame games? It's 3-9. So, Oof. yeah, I was it's just told like some of that stuff. Yeah. So you're saying you're 2007 Notre Dame. <laughs> I was nine and three straight up, but against the spread, pretty awful this year. So you're not worried at all about losing this game without Diaco and Martin, possibly I, I, a disinterested team. If again, if we if we do end up losing, um, however, how, however unlikely it would be a bad loss. But you've given Kelly's sort of given himself an out. Like oh, the players uh, were. You know, missing the coaches. We had we had a little. We had a couple rough practices because we weren't expecting the changes that we had. But again, I I would I would like to think even with the most vanilla of defenses that Notre Dame would somehow find a way to to beat a team like Rutgers. The the only thing I would say uh, that you said where we were we would run it 65 times. Rutgers' sort of biggest weakness all year has been their passing game. 
you're talking about a team that is surrendered over 300 yards in the air. They're in fact they're one of the bottom five passing defenses in the country. So I, I think sort of flipping the the argument a little. I think one of the arguments uh, in the off season may be that we threw the ball too much in the bowl game that we really weren't able to see because, oh, we have four running backs returning. Oh, we've got all these really strong running backs with a really strong offensive line that we have been, uh, that, that, that we weren't re- able to gauge anything because we threw the ball to TJ Jones and we threw the ball to DeVaris Daniels and Troy Nicholas every single down in this game. <laughs> and it, it it it'll it again it'll be interesting to see because I like you said weather may pose an issue here. We're playing in the middle near the end of December in New York City, so it's and <laughs> the weather it could be a driving snowstorm for all we know. All right, let's talk everybody's favorite trophy in all of sports, the Heisman. They recently announced six finalists, not three, not four, not five, but six finalists for the Heisman Trophy. We're going to go ahead and put Jameis Winston as the winner in the number one slot. Now, what I want to ask from you is to rank the remaining five prospects, um, two through six. So if you want to go ahead and just list them out or list them one at a time and maybe why you put them where you did, whichever way you want to do it, and I'll do the same. Sure. If For those who really haven't been paying attention to the Heisman uh, stats, raise your hand. I'm raising my hand right now. So I had to go and look at the stats, but the finalists are Winston, who's obviously pretty much a shoe in to win. He may end up getting the most votes ever, uh, first place votes ever. We'll, we'll have to see. Uh, but the other finalists are Jordan Lynch, quarterback Northern Illinois, Trey Mason from Auburn, A.J. McCarron from Alabama, Johnny Manziel, and Andre Williams, the running back from Boston College. Uh, my number two is Jordan Lynch. Jordan Lynch actually theoretically would have been my number one if Winston hadn't been sort of come come out of nowhere. Surprising, yes, because he's a Mac quarterback. But again, we're talking about uh, the Heisman has sort of been the most dynamic, the best player on, not necessarily the best player on the best team, but that's what they've been doing as of late. I've sort of been a, a purist where I've, I've liked to give it to the player who I felt was sort of the best player uh, at his position, best player that made his team better, which is why I thought Manti Teo should have won it last year. But Lynch is my number two. But hold on, I'll, 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 put it, I'll jump in there and I'll just sure. say I put Lynch last. I put him at number six. Uh, my reasoning being, you know, I don't want to hate on the Mac too much, but I, I kind of think it's you're playing a different level of competition. And uh, I think that last loss against Bowling Green hurts him a little bit. Um, you know, he played okay in that game. His, his defense was really what let him down that game. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to really put someone that plays in the Mac up that high. So, um, you know, he had a, a good season uh, as a passer. You know, he was... He's okay as a passer. 1,881 rushing yards is really great. 22 touchdowns is really great. Um, but I just couldn't put a Mac uh, player that high. So you keep going with your list, and I'll butt in whenever. You, you're I need ruining to. my chi, you're ruining my chi here. <laughs> my, I, I did have Lynch as not my number two. Um, like you said, obviously, 
you know, the the competition is everything. But again, m my rationale for that is he didn't get to really pick who he was playing. He didn't get to pick his opponents. So he, the only thing he could do as a player is perform the best he could against those opponents. That's true. And against them, he he was dy he was <laughs> he was dynamite. Twenty three touchdowns, passed for over twenty five hundred yards, actually over twenty six hundred yards, uh, rushed for. Almost 2,000 yards, 1,881 yards. He passed for 23 touchdowns with seven interceptions, rushed for 22. So on the ground, he's averaging about seven yards on the ground. And, you know, this is a what, – what you're looking at with that type of season stat is a quarterback who really is his team. He is his offense. And you take him away – Northern Illinois is maybe a, a four, five, maybe a four-win football team. That's why he's number two for me. He made his team better. He's a, he is a, a, not necessarily the best quarterback in the country, but he is the quarterback in the country that made his team better as a result. So he's my number two. Okay, I'd buy that. Uh, I think he deserves the uh, invite to New York. So, mm -hmm. okay, keep going. My number three uh, was. Grown AJ McCarron, uh, Alabama quarterback. Um, I, I think, obviously, if you were watching the the Auburn game, uh, they lost not because of him. There was some sort of larger issues at play with regards to Alabama's special teams uh, that I'm sure Punter Bro would would <laughs> have a a Bible to write about that, but. Again, tw passing for almost 3,000 yards. Again, 2,600 yards, 26 touchdowns, five interceptions. He is a guy that I think would have been the de facto uh, Heisman winner had, had w Jameis Winston's legal issues gone another way. Uh, he, is a t he is a quarterback that has made his team better, uh, although his team, unlike... Jordan Lynch was absolutely loaded in pretty much every position, but he isn't a guy who wasted that opportunity. He is a guy who utilized the talents around him to make his team better. He may go down in history as one of sort of the the all-time Alabama quarterbacks because of the fact that his teams were so good. And when you're the quarterback of a football team, you're viewed as the leader of that team. So regardless of the strength of his running game or his offensive line or how great his defenses were, the quarterback is always the leader of the team. As a result of that, he would have he's my number three. All right, I had him at number two. Um, based on... I'm giving him the career boost, um, you know, and I, I think Agreed. the Heisman... The Heisman people probably are a little pissed off that Alabama lost that game to Auburn because there could have been an insane uh, vote between him and Winston coming up. I still think he's going to grab a couple of career votes, and uh, Winston's not going to have a, a humongous victory. Um, but we'll see about that. And I think you know his stats don't really show it that much, but I think there are a lot of times this year where they really relied on him to carry the offense. Um, which is a little bit different than what they've done in the in years past. So, uh, and I think he's on pace to probably throw the ball a little bit more than he ever has at Alabama. So, um, especially on a per game basis, and uh, you know he's always had great stats, great leader. Uh, he had that big throw in the Auburn game, which I thought for sure was going to win him the Heisman. Um, so I had him at two. Who's your Who's your number three? 
my well, McCarran was my number three. My number oh, four right. is uh, it, it's basically my, my between Manziel and Trey Mason. I'm gonna go with Trey Mason, okay. but I I think when you're he to me suffers from a little bit of the what I call the the Tebow syndrome, where he's part of a system offense that results in pretty gaudy stats for him. And right. When you look at his, take a look at he's a running back, so you do have to give all due deference to his his passing stats. But 11 catches for 120 yards. That's on the season. So he only caught the ball 11 times in 12 games. But that's because Auburn never never threw the football. They would run the football almost every down. As a result, 283 carries, 1,600 yards, 22 touchdowns. Not bad. Uh, not not bad at all. Uh, and you're talking about a guy who really came on the scene because he did so well against Alabama. So when you're taking one of the top five defenses in the country and he does what he did against them uh, just with just an an insane performance he he by default sort of jumps into the the Heisman top 6 i'm not entirely sure he would have been if i really was paying attention to sort of the Heisman voting i'm not entirely sure he would have been in my top 6 at all but as a result of my sort of disgust at some of the other ones that are in the finals as a result he sort of falls to 4 for me Sort of the best of the the worst that are the finalists. Yeah, that's where I had him. I had him at four. I thought his early part of the season wasn't really that strong. And I think in, in real life, in the real vote, he's probably going to pick up a good chunk of the vote because he played so well down the stretch, and that always seems to really um, stick with the Heisman voters' minds. Although I think there was some talk about how many voters put in their votes before the SEC title game. So we'll see how much that plays a factor um, into how many votes he gets. You know, I'm just looking at his stats. He didn't have a hundred-yard game in his in the first three games. Uh, he only had one hundred-yard game, although it was against LSU, which is pretty impressive. Uh, in four of the five games, uh, like you said, finished strong. Um, 1,600 yards in the SEC. That's nothing to sneeze at. 22 touchdowns is great. Um, 5.7 yards per carry, that's real strong. But like you said, kind of a system running back. Um, you know, a lot of other Auburn running backs who got touches have really great stats as well. Um, but then again, you know, Mark Ingram won, won the Heisman with 600 yards as well, and less touchdowns, um, a little bit more yards per carry. But uh, I think fourth is a good spot for him. So you can continue with your list. My number five is Johnny Manziel. Okay. Uh, it's, it, I'm not entirely sure. Again, I guess he would have been in my five, which is why I have him at five. No slouch. Uh, through 273-91 for 3,732 yards, 33 touchdowns and thir- 13 interceptions. You could easily make the argument that the struggles that A&M had this year was uh, were on the defensive side of the football. Uh, he also uh, was very... He really carried his team. He's a highlight real quarterback. Uh, you'll see that 
that phrase out there. I, th- I think anyone who's who's seen him play last year and this year, he just makes some pretty insane plays uh, as a quarterback, and I give him a lot of credit. However, where I where I do knock him down is his interceptions. Uh, thirty three touchdowns, yeah, but he also threw thirteen picks. And a lot of those interceptions were at key moments in games that really changed the scope. Uh, he threw a couple really bad picks against Alabama. Uh, he did throw, I believe, he th- I think it was against Missouri. It just just some some pretty mediocre performances against top competition. And I will actually make the argument that when you look at his final stats for a game like Alabama, that it was kind of Robert Griffin III-esque with regards to the Redskins this year, where he really padded it late in the game when A&M had to throw. So I think the reason why I have him at five is because I watched A&M play this year, and I kind of saw what he had to do. I would put him on the same rating scale as a quarterback like McCarron uh, had A&M may have been able to win some of those games uh, but as a result I got to knock him down to five yeah the four losses aren't helping his cause at all um, I think the big thing with Manziel for me in terms of him being a Heisman candidate is his rushing this year I thought that was something that completely separated him from everyone last year and in some respects from all the other Heisman winners in the past. Um, he led Texas A&M in rushing again this year, but only had 600 and six, 686 yards, only eight touchdowns, um, 5.16 yards per carry, which is that's really good for a running for a quarterback. Um, God knows if a Notre Dame could get a quarterback to run like that, um, we'd be parting in the street. But last year he more than doubled that. He had 1,400 yards, 21 rushing touchdowns. Um, a seven yard per carry average carried the ball 201 times I mean that those are just phenomenal numbers and this year I think you know his passing was a little bit better um, if you if you're not looking at the interceptions um, he threw I think five more interceptions this year um, but uh, you know like you said highlight real plays but uh, definitely not the same impact that he had last year So you got one more to go here. Your, your sixth and final guy is Andre Williams. My Yeah, it is Andre Williams uh, from Boston College. Again, good stats. 329 carries, over 2,000 yards, 2,102 yards, 17 scores. Uh, the two reasons why I knock him uh, okay. on Williams is one the problem that he has in trying to go head-to-head against somebody like Trey Mason. So you've got an SEC running back against top competition where in the SEC championship game he completely goes off with yardage. Whereas with Andre Williams, to me, his yards are maybe a touch misleading. Uh, He did if you look at Boston College's schedule, they did play some good teams in uh, Florida State. They played Clemson. They played those teams relatively close, too. However, you're also looking at teams that they played like New Mexico State, 
why would I say New Mexico State? Because New Mexico State has the last ranked rushing defense in the country. So when you look at the New Mexico State box score and you go, oh, Andre Williams rushed the ball for almost 300 yards against New Mexico State, that's why. It's because they had the last ranked rushing defense. I give, again, sort of, you'll say, well, Paul, you're giving that, you're giving a lot more credit to Jordan Lynch for playing against lower competition. My comparison for that is when Williams was able to play good competition against good rushing teams, yes, against Florida State, he did rush for 150 yards. That's nice. However, against a team like USC, they did play Southern Cal. He rushed for 38 yards on 17 carries, a 2.2 average. That's pretty ugly. So I, I'm inclined to simply state that he's merely a finalist because of his overall yardage, because he put up Priest Holmes uh, rushing yards this year uh, with regards to the, the 2,000 uh, score. I haven't heard that. However, yeah, I know. Whipping out Baltimore Ravens and Kansas City Chiefs players for you. Um, but sort of his running has been based to me on competition that he's been able to take advantage of, whereas players like Lynch, who didn't have a choice over that competition, whereas with Williams, against the, the top competition, against teams like USC, he really didn't perform, but he did go off against teams with lesser-ranked rushing defenses. As a result, i got to put him sixth. The other thing, too, is you look at Boston College's just their their overall record. You know, the, the, they're not a team. They're a seven and five football team. I'm not entirely sure how you could say. I, mean, I guess you could make the argument that Andre Williams is the reason why they're seven and five. But that's you know that's like saying you know you're 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 the prettiest ugly girl at the dance it's not one of those things that i would really hang my hat on had they been maybe 9 a 9 or 10 win football team i'd give them a lot more credit than 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 i am right now as a result i got to put him at 6th he's he's the top rusher in the country but on a team that's 7 and 5 so that's that's why i have him last i put him at 3rd i i wouldn't really disagree with anything you said too much um I just think, you know, 2,100 yards, 2,100 yards. Um, yeah, he padded his stats against some, some bad teams in there. Um, but, you know, 339 yards against NC State, that's pretty good. 263 against Maryland. You know, he had some monster games in there, and, and I think that's kind of a testament to his talent. Um, you know, I haven't really watched him all that close this year, but I can't imagine that the Boston College offense is all that talented and their line is all that talented um, um, but I, I just you know 2,000 yards I'm going to put him up at third um, but he did have a couple stink bombs in there and he obviously didn't finish the season that well with only 29 yards on 9 carries when he got hurt against Syracuse and that obviously will hurt his cause um, I'm really interested to see where he falls because um, I think a lot of the older voters especially will see that 2,100 yards in that 6.39 yards per carry and kind of boost him up, but there might be a lot more like you who will put him down at six, so uh, we'll see what happens with that whole voting. I can't believe they put in six guys in this in this thing, but... Yeah, I'm, I, you could make the argument that it's five too many. It's, it's one of those years where we kind of know who it's going to be. There's not a lot of uh, suspense, 
So just sort yeah. of give it to Winston and let's get it over with. Right now. I wonder if they're going to have them all sitting in the front row or maybe stack them uh, three in each row. You have to do a wide-angled shot for the yeah. for all of them in one row. Long, drawn-out video packages on their families and interviews with Chris Fowler and yuck. Yeah. Sign, and it's sign, gonna me be up, sign me up for something else. Awkward with Manziel there, too, the reigning winner. McCarran yeah, there's not really there. much they get, they're going to be able to talk about. McCarran's girlfriend's going to be there. You know she'll be there. Mm. All right, let's finish it up with our last topic here. We're going to talk some bowl games. Um, the question here is, give me your top three bowl games for this postseason. We're not going to count the championship game against Auburn and Florida State. Um, we both kind of decided beforehand we weren't going to really just name three BCS bowls. Um, I think we both have one BCS bowl each uh, so, Paul, give me your three bowl games that you are most looking forward to. The first one may surprise a lot of people, uh, but I'm going to go with the first bowl of the year is the Gildan New Mexico Bowl. It's Washington wow. State, Colorado State. Yeah, it, 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 and the only reason why I'm saying this is I am a a big Mike Leach fan. I I, okay. I, I get a kick out of, of the what he's been able to do there. Uh, winning at Washington State is difficult. I mean, Washington State is in Pullman in the middle of nowhere, so it's very hard to get talent there. And you also got to give a lot of credit to Colorado State. These are two teams who haven't been to a bowl game in a very, very, very long time. So this exactly. is... A, this is a Super Bowl for these teams. These are these are it's a what I view as going to be a, a pretty good matchup. Uh, I I think uh, what sort of sold me on Washington State uh, was when I I sort of sat through in the wee hours of the morning and watched Washington State Oregon game where uh, the Washington State quarterback threw the ball 90 times or just about 90 times, and it, it's sort of reminded me of the sort of the Cliff Kingsbury and Sonny Harrell years of um, uh, of when Mike Leach was at Texas Tech, of how they would just sling the ball all over the place. I, I could envision this being a, a pretty high-scoring game because it's early enough in the year uh, that, that weather may not necessarily be an issue there. I think maybe even the first slate of games on the first day are all going to be worth watching. Uh, maybe not necessarily Tulane, Louisiana, Lafayette, if that isn't your cup of tea, but the first day, December 21st, you've got a, a, a good crop of games uh, in you know Wazoo, Colorado State, which is, is my first interesting one, but then the other ones, Fresno State, USC in the Las Vegas Bowl, Buffalo, San Diego State in, in, playing in Boise, and then Tulane, Louisiana, Lafayette in, in New Orleans. That's not necessarily a bad slate when you're talking especially about the first day of, of bowl games, but I'm going to go with the first one. I'm going to go with Wazoo, Colorado State. All right, my first one is the Capital One Bowl, Wisconsin and South Carolina. Was that on your list? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just just missed. That, okay. that was sort of one of the ones that I crossed off at the end. Yeah, I'm really interested to see. I think that's an interesting matchup. I think you got uh, the clowny. Stuff swirling, you know, his last game in South Carolina, mm-hmm. um, Wisconsin looking for a 10th win, and um, Gary Anderson's first year there. Um, Steve Spurrier, always always a fun coach to watch. Um, I think that's just overall a solid matchup. You know, I'm, I'm Mr. 
grouch when it comes to bowl games, but I think that's one of the the better bowl games. What's your second? I one? agree. My second one is in the BCS. Uh, okay. It is it is the Tostitos Fiesta Bowl. Uh, I have loved watching Baylor all year. Uh, I, I even when they have lost, I, I've I've still enjoyed watching them. I, I think they've got an absolutely dynamic offense. I enjoy watching Art Briles coach. Uh, I enjoy watching uh, just the the speed at which they're able to put points on the board. And then you're taking a team like University of Central Florida, which really came out of nowhere. I don't think anyone envisioned them being remotely close to the BCS this year. I think when we when we looked at and this may even go I may even go back and listen to some of our preseason podcasts where you took took a team and you took that conference the AAC and you looked at how necessarily weak it was and pretty much everyone had signed and sealed Louisville as the champion and they were going to compete for a national championship. Well, out of nowhere comes UCF. So it, it's it's a good going to be a good contest for them. I, I I'm I'm kind of glad that it's a team like Central Florida that Baylor is playing, and that Baylor is a team that Central Florida gets to play. That you don't have to worry about being overwhelmed with you know Alabama fans or Ohio State fans, depending on where the the specific bowl game that you're playing. I think it'll be a pretty evenly match stadium, uh, maybe not necessarily the most evenly matched game, but it should be a, a fun game to watch, a good high-scoring game, I think. I think that's the second highest spread out of all the bowl games. I think the Notre mm-hmm. Dame game at least started out as the the highest spread. Um, you know, I, I want to get into that game, um, but I, just, I don't know. Maybe I will when it, when, it, when it comes time for it to come on the air, but... Uh, I like Baylor a lot. I think they're fun to watch. Um, hopefully they can get healthy. They had a lot of injuries um, late in the season that kind of zapped them of a lot of their energy and potency on offense. Um, I'm trying to check and see what the line of that game is. Uh, that's sitting at minus 16 now, so that's more than the, the Notre Dame game. Minus 17 on a couple places too, so that's uh, yeah, super I competitive, was... but... Yeah, right. It's not going to be the closest game, but it's going to be a fun game. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of points on the board. So I'll throw my BCS Bowl in there. I'm going to go with the, the Rose Bowl, the uh, the Man Ball Bowl. Mm. Uh, that's going to be a good game, I think. Uh, you know, As much as I don't really enjoy the Bulls all that much, I, I do like the Rose Bowl a lot. Um, it's always the most uh, traditional laden bowl. Um, and I'm really interested to see... Uh, how these teams match up with each other. That would be a really fun game that, personally, I would just like to do a, a, a preview of and hang on the site just for the heck of it. Um, I think Bergs is going to be doing our bowl preview, so I'll let him do that. But uh, that's a game I'm really looking forward to. Uh, be pretty crazy if Michigan wins that game and finishes 13-1 and with their only loss being Notre Dame. Uh, that would be pretty nuts that we beat a 13-win team. And... Uh, you know, it's got to be probably one of the top two or three Michigan State teams in school history. Well, at least since 1950, I would I would assume. I don't really know a whole lot about their history, but that's a darn good season for Michigan State if they win this game. Agreed. Uh, my my sort of pushback with with the Rose Bowl is I could easily envision the final score of that game being like three to nothing or six yeah. to three. And, and the one it's thing just going to be a, a grinding game. Yeah, and the one thing I didn't really like when it first came out was it seemed a lot like Stanford and 
Wisconsin last year. It's kind of like that same bowl game part two. So, but uh, yeah, who knows? It might be a lot of offense. It might not be, but I'm interested interested to see how those teams play out. So, who is your uh, your your third bowl there? The bowl game that I'm most looking forward to. Okay, drum this is roll the one you're is, most looking forward to. I'm most looking forward to is the AT&T Cotton Bowl, Oklahoma State Missouri. Uh, yeah. I think I think Missouri sort of acquitted themselves very well in the SEC championship game. It's just it's very hard to stop Auburn when Auburn gets going, uh, but they didn't necessarily look bad. I give them a lot of credit. When your starting quarterback goes down in the middle of the year, and your backups playing, and 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 Matty Mock did a good job in, in getting them pretty much almost to where they needed to get. They did drop the one game to to South Carolina. However, they did get to the SEC championship, and you're talking about a team that was last place in the SEC East a year before. So kudos to them as well uh, when you look at Oklahoma State. I think Oklahoma State is going to have a lot to prove. They really played themselves out of the BCS in the Bedlam game uh, just by not really focusing on defense. They've got a lot of, they've got a lot of proof, a lot to prove. But again, I'm picking games where there's going to be points on the board, and Oklahoma State and Missouri are really high-scoring teams to me, uh, especially with the style, the up-tempo style of football that they play. I really like uh, James Franklin. Um, I really like Posey. Uh, I think you, you could make make the argument that the reason why Missouri wasn't as good last year as they were was because Posey went down. So it, it's a game that I, I'm looking forward to. It's one of those thing, one of those bowl games where I wish Notre Dame sort of had a tie-in to get back into the Cotton Bowl because I miss the years that that Notre Dame was able to get into the Cotton Bowl where we would match up, you know, like you said, man ball uh, again against good teams. Uh, and above everything else, it's an after New Year's Bowl, but it's close enough to New Year's that I'm able to to respect it enough that that I think it's going to be. Uh, just a good classic game. So the Cotton Bowl for me is my number one. Okay, I didn't really rank mine in terms of m- most, like the most of the, the bowl games that I wanted to see the most. Um, That's fair. My la- my last one is going to be the Chick Fil A Bowl, Duke versus Texas A and M. Um, really, really interested to see Duke play. Um, really interested to see A and M play. Probably Johnny Menzel's last game. Who knows what he does in this game? Who knows what he does after the game? Um, and I think, I don't know, it's a big game for Texas A&M. They've been recruiting lights out. Kevin Sullivan's been doing a good job in terms of recruiting, but, you know, they were sky high last year. Everyone was in love with them. They're 8-4. and four. They went 4-4 four and four in the SEC. I'm sure they're going to win this game, but, I mean, this could be super entertaining if, if Duke brought this down to the wire and somehow pulled it out. Uh and there'd be just tons of talk in the offseason about Texas A&M and all the stuff going on at Texas. and So I think that's one of the games I'm really looking forward to watch. I think this has been a pretty good year for college football. There's been a lot more parity than than we'd, we'd care to admit. I mean, when you look at the fact that there were, I think, six or so Sunbelt teams that weren't able to get in, it sort of goes to show you how many teams were eligible this year. Uh, even a team like Rutgers that ended up backing into the, their bowl game, you're looking at teams that, that really came out of nowhere, teams that 
really weren't playing in anywhere remotely close to bowl games. Washington State, Colorado State, teams like Ohio, teams like Marshall. Uh, e- even when you look at a team like Duke, I think you know David Cutcliffe may have my vote for Coach of the Year because of what he's been able to do there. I mean, you're talking about Duke has been sort of the the whipping boy of the ACC for years, and they come out of nowhere and win their division, and it's a strong division too. And you're talking about a team that absolutely, you know, destroyed Miami, that played lights out, that that's been able to get things done with sort of the situation that they have with kind of being in the shadow of basketball. So I I, I think that's a, a really good pick in the, in the Chick-fil-A Bowl. It, it's going to be a very, I, like you said, a very entertaining game on both sides, if, especially if Duke's able to bring it to the wire. All right, that's going to wrap up the 20th episode of the One Foot Down podcast. Um, I can't make any promises that we'll get in another podcast before the bowl game. Um, I would like to. We're taping this on a Thursday, December 12th. Um, but there probably won't be much news to talk about and um, Notre Dame's probably not going to hire, or definitely, I don't think it's going to hire any coaches until after the bowl game. So um, I think we'll probably have to wait till after the bowl game for our next podcast. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get out of here? Just uh, thank everyone again for listening. Uh, tell your friends, subscribe to us on iTunes, give us a rating, and be sure to check us out on the, on, on the blog. Keep reading the website, guys. All right, that's Paul. I am Eric, and we are out of here for the One Foot Down Podcast. Later.